You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Cannabis extracts, or dabs, have become a huge part of the cannabis industry, with more and more people choosing extracts over cannabis flower, largely because of the rise in popularity of vape pens that allow people to discreetly vaporize cannabis extracts almost anywhere unnoticed. Additionally, most product manufacturers use cannabis extracts in some form or another when they're making things like tinctures and topicals or infused foods, because it's far easier to standardize the potency and ensure the cannabinoids are evenly distributed in a product when you use an extract rather than the herb itself, which makes perfect sense. But what do you really know about cannabis extraction? How do these different cannabis extraction methods differ? And how are cannabis extracts refined? And more importantly, are these products safe? Join us as we take a deep dive into the world of cannabis extraction and refinement. The world of cannabis extraction can be very exciting, intellectually stimulating, a little mysterious, and sometimes even seductive. There are many different ways to extract chemical compounds from cannabis. Beyond extraction, there are a number of different processes that might take place after the extraction to clean the extract up, refine it, or manipulate the chemistry in some way. And this all leads to a wide spectrum of products and product consistencies ranging from hash to rosin, butter, batter, wax, pull and snap, shatter, sauce, diamonds, isolate, and everything in between. In this episode, we'll be taking a critical look at the world of cannabis extraction and processing to unravel a basic understanding about the different ways that cannabis extracts are made, how these processes may affect the chemistry of the final product, and what questions consumers should be asking about their favorite extracts. And to guide our curious quest, we'll be focusing on several key questions. One, what are the primary ways that cannabis extracts are made? Number two, why are there so many different types of cannabis extracts and how do they differ? And three, are cannabis extracts safe? So without further ado, let's get started. There are several primary ways that most extractors use to pull chemicals out of the cannabis plant. Some of the oldest and simplest forms of cannabis extraction involve simply sifting the cannabis plant over screens to collect the resinous trichomes that hold most of the cannabinoids and terpenoids. This method of dry sifting produces a product that many refer to as keef. It's a powdery consistency and can be pressed together to form hash. Contrary to dry sifting, there is also wet sifting, which produces a product commonly referred to as bubble hash or water hash. Anyone that's ever seen a cannabis plant, you've seen that it's got this frost on it. Some, some people like to call it the crystals. Some people call it the THC, even though that's not really accurate. What it actually is, is called glandular trichomes. This is Marcus Bubbleman Richardson, who was largely responsible for popularizing bubble hash in the late 1990s and early 2000s. These little crystals are little mushroom-like creatures. They have a stalk and they have a, a little head on the end of them. Inside that head is where the magic happens with cannabinoids and terpenes. And so bubble hash is really just those heads 
broken off. And I'll give you a little explanation. So inside that head, we have things called organelles, two of them on either side. You have a plastid and a vacuole. Plastids produce phenols, which are alcohols. And the vacuoles produce hydrocarbons, which are terpenes. So these hydrocarbons and phenols push up into the upper membrane of this little globe, and they basically start synthesizing CBGA with the help of UVB and, and probably some other things that we're not even aware of at this point in time. So all of the compounds, all of the cannabinoids, which is THCA, CBDA, CBGA, there's a lot of them. You can look them up as well as the entire terpene profile. And there's upwards of 180 of those from humulene to terpenoline to alpha-pinene to myrcene and beta-caryophylline, which is the one that drug dogs were always tested in because yeah. it's often a dominant terpene, very peppery uh, and very, very noticeable to, to a dog's nose. So those little heads are where the magic occurs, where the medicine is produced. So that wax membrane holds it all in place. Bubble hash is basically, and you can do this at home, you could take a little bud, you could put it in a glass of water with an ice cube or two, you can kind of shake it up, you know, break that bud up, shake it all up, and what will happen is the little resin glands will become very brittle in the cold, that wax makes them very brittle, it'll break off right at the neck where the head sits at, which is the most easily broken area, it'll break off, and due to the density of the trichome head and the, the fact that it's oil-filled, it's still affected by gravity and water, and that's really the magic of bubble hash. So those little glandular trichome heads sink in the water while everything else stays afloat. And then we just pull micron screen bags accordingly. First one pulls out all the flour. The second one pulls out you know, some contaminant, and then you start getting these different gland heads at different micron diameters. So that's really what bubble hash is. It's the medicinal components that are you know, produced by the plant in these glandular trichomes. Another mechanical way to extract chemicals from cannabis involves squeezing the plant material or a cannabis extract and collecting the resins that ooze out of the squeeze. This is usually done under heat so that the resins melt and pour out during the pressing so that they can be easily collected. This method of squeezing or pressing cannabis under heat to collect its resins is called rosin production. Now, beyond the mechanical methods of extraction, there are chemical methods, which utilize various types of solvents to grab the fraction of the canvas plant that's desired, or in some cases, to grab the fractions that aren't desired and to remove them. Of course, everyone seems to have a different definition of what's desirable, what extraction methods are best, but we'll come back to that later. The simplest form of solvent extraction is probably the use of food lipids like butters or plant oils which can be used to extract the resins from the cannabis flower before using the infused lipid in a recipe. Think about like cannabis infused butters for instance. Because cannabinoids and terpenes are lipophilic or oil loving, they mix well with other oils and fats and this plays into the chemistry involved in the use of other solvents, which we'll talk about later. Beyond food lipids, there are a variety of different chemical solvents that can be used to extract cannabinoids, terpenoids, and all sorts of other plant compounds. Last year, I connected with Dr. Wyeth Calloway, an organic chemist working on cannabis extraction method development. During the conversation, he described the primary differences between extraction methods that are commonly used in the cannabis industry. Cannabis extracts would start with uh, the crazy days, 
when yeah. people were taking glass tubes, filling <laughs> them with either nugs or, uh, you know, cannabinoid-rich trim and blasting them through with these cans of butane. And so the butane will pick up the cannabinoids and the terpenes and out, out at the end of this glass tube comes this mucky stuff, brown stuff, which they're, they're going to uh, purge the butane out and uh, get a cannabis concentrate. So um, that's hydrocarbon. Uh, nowadays, you have these closed-looped extractors, which simply means that uh, the, the uh, cannabis is loaded into these tanks. Um, and what will happen is uh, hydrocarbon, butane, propane mixes, uh, isobutane, everyone sort of has their recipe, will be uh, flushed through these tubes containing you know, um, the uh, biomass. And imagine this whole apparatus is stainless steel. Uh, it can tolerate very high pressure. And as you flush the solvent through each of these tubes, um, you're going to eventually bring it over to something called a honey pot. And before you do that, you're going to purge the butane with inside the system. And it's going to go back into this moving reservoir. So the butane is, uh, or the hydrocarbon, is uh, recycled. Um, people really like it because you can uh, you can do the extraction in uh, low temperatures, um, and you can help eliminate a lot of the waxes that are in the plant, and mm. uh, get a lighter, uh, very good-looking terpy uh, crude. And uh, all you have to purge is hydro hydrocarbons, which are really low boiling. So mm. you can do these in warm vacuum ovens. Uh, get rid of all the hydrocarbon and you know you can use it as a raw concentrate or it can go on further to uh, further processing uh, be that distillation or some kind of winterization or make diamonds out of uh, this extract. Um, the next method it would be uh, supercritical CO2. Roughly speaking you're going to uh, pressurize CO2 uh, gas in Inside of a, uh, it's also a uh, closed stainless steel uh, extractor. You're going to load your biomass again in these socks and inside a tube, and you're going to pressurize the CO2 until it's a liquid. Because uh, you may or may not know, but it, in normal conditions, dry ice doesn't become a liquid as it melts; it becomes immediately a gas. So the CO2 is roughly uh, a decent polarity to pull cannabinoids. Um, there's a big debate on conditions and whether you use cold solvents or not. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't really speak to that, but the extracts tend to have um, more wax in them. Uh, if you don't remove the terpenes, um, the process of getting the material ready for the CO2 extraction will uh, destroy the terpene profile. Mm. Um, advantage of this, it's eco-friendly. Um, you're only using CO2 and, uh, you know, as opposed to hydrocarbon, where you have to do really good purge to get rid of all the butane yeah. and propane, isobutane. Um, on the other hand, so we have more waxes. Uh, right. Unfortunately, the um, machines are fairly slow um, mm -hmm. and you have to operate at very high pressure. But you will see people still using these, in fact, in uh, hemp, it's uh, one of the interesting ways to go because it's 
to be operated under what's called a Type 6 license in California uh, without volatile solvents. Um, last but not least, and this has become sort of the giant of the industry, is ethanol extraction. Ethanol is not a very selective solvent at room temperature, and it'll pick up uh, more plant matter, chlorophyll, uh, waxes, probably even some of these uh, fatty acids, and you get a really, really uh, soupy, um, hard-to-deal-with mixture when it's time to cool it down and filter it and uh, just try to get the cannabinoids alone. Uh, we had a lot, we had to use carbon scrubbing uh, mm -hmm. to get out the chlorophyll, uh, a lot of processing with ethanol. Now what people figured out was, hey, well, why don't we do this ethanol at a very, very cold temperature at the temperature you're going to do the so-called filtration winterization steps. Let's just go ahead and skip a step and do the extraction of those temperatures. So the advantage of ethanol is you can do a lot of it very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, disadvantage, you uh, have to remove a lot of solvent very quickly. Uh, yeah. Use a lot of solvent to do these extracts. And uh, you can also have difficulties with uh, maintaining terpene profiles. Um, in the past, a lot of people have gotten around this by adding plant-derived terpenes. So, uh, you know, with the goal of just being make as much drugs as possible. So uh, ethanol throughput and um, I would say ease of use of the equipment. Uh, all the whole process is fairly easy to uh, put under stainless steel, make one continuous process. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there you have it. Uh, I would say the majority of large producers are going to ethanol. But how does someone decide what extraction method to use? So the first uh, question that everyone has to ask themselves is what do you want to make? Yeah. Um, your end product is really important. And a really quick and easy way to simplify that is um, does your final product need to have the original terpene and flavor profile from the plant? Yes or no? Um, this is Murphy Murray, a cannabis educator and botanical extraction technologist. Um, and, you know, a yes to that answer means that you're looking at CO2 or uh, liquid hydrocarbons. If it's a no, then you can look at CO2, liquid hydrocarbons, or potentially ethanol or heptane or you know some of these other products. Um, if you, uh, the other question you have to ask yourself is what type of cannabinoids are you looking for? Yeah. Do you need the acid form? Do you need those um, you know crystalline solids? Or are you looking for a decarboxylated product because certain extraction methods are also more likely to give you one or the other. And so um, those two questions will usually shorten your list right away. And so from there, you know, ethanol is one of the best solvents suited for scale currently. And the reason for that is that so much ethanol extraction already exists in other industries. It's considered food safe. Yeah. And so there are, you know, regulations and equipment in place that we can just straight up copy and um, you know, put into effect for cannabis. However, the boiling temperature for ethanol and um, you know, its interactions with water are really problematic, uh, especially depending on the qualities of your inputs. And so you lose terpene content almost no matter what. And you are also um, at risk for some degradation and some pH issues, um, extraction of undesirable compounds like sugars. And so there's a lot of things to consider that um, are going to lead you to, first of all, a decarboxylated product, um, but also more than likely an isolated product. It's going to be harder for you to have a clean 
oil that doesn't call for a lot of post-processing and cleanup. Yeah. And so, you know, the the drawbacks are, you know, definitely very chemical. Um, but the benefit is that if you want to process 5,000 pounds or more per yeah. day of raw material, ethanol is your current best option. Um, however, that 5,000 pounds that you extracted that day isn't ready for sale that day. Right. It's, yeah. um, it's still in solution, most yeah. likely. It's a you big know? picture. Um, exactly. So, um, you know, there's still more days in that final product production end. Um, if we look at CO2, CO2 is a very complicated product because CO2 is a flexible solvent. Um, it relies completely on the operator and the equipment having a plan and sticking to it. And so CO2 is capable of being an excellent uh, solvent for terpene extraction. It's also capable of extracting a lot of water and wax and nonsense, <laughs> yep, yep. Um, just depending on you know how that equipment is used and how efficient that process is. A lot of people decarboxylate their material, like you mentioned, um, to avoid the water issues, which means sacrificing terpene content, which is a bummer because uh, CO2 is capable of doing probably one of the best yeah. jobs with terpenes as far as solvent extraction would go. Um, but, you know, it, it comes generally with the cost of still requiring winterization mm -hmm. in ethanol. Yep. So I tend to put CO2 and ethanol together because whether you make your crude with ethanol or you make it with CO2, you probably are going to be following the post-processing yeah. path. Um, that's the same either way, which would be that winterization and filtration and then probably most likely distillation. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, the exception to not going to distillate is usually um, still just to be in that raw oil form. So maybe you might not distill, but it's still only available for pens or for, you know, food. It's still not, um, you know, it's still a limited product as far as what you can do with it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so hydrocarbon is a lot more flexible in that regard because while it is a very small input batch size, we're doing, you know, 500 pounds or less per day in the average lab, um, you know, which is not massive scale. We're yeah, not going to yeah, feed the right. world with that. Um, however, I don't have any of that week-long post-processing that follows it up. Mm -hmm. So while I might only get to process 500 pounds that day, I could sell the oil that I made that day the next day, yeah. Um, which is, you know, a big difference. And it's um, something that, you know, we often skip when we look at our production plans mm -hmm. is, you know, how many, uh, you know, like we think about how much can this equipment do, right. you know, per pound, per yep. hour, whatever. But we have to bring it all the way back and say, okay, well, all of this equipment in a straight line is going to take how long from raw material to packaged and for sale. Exactly. And hydrocarbon is absolutely the fastest for that. Butane and propane evaporate at very low temperatures, which means we get the acid form, mm -hmm. which means I can go to Delta nine. I can distill it. I can make a tincture. Right. I can make edibles or I can make all of these other things that I can't do um, as easily or as quickly with CO2 or ethanol. Yeah. So that um, that post-processing flexibility is the primary advantage there. It is, however, combustible. Yeah. And so, you know, with ethanol, we have the flammable issue. And with CO2, we have the high-pressure issue. Mm -hmm. With the liquid hydrocarbons, we have both. Yeah. So, um, you know, the risks are significant, and the risks are only mitigated via equipment and safe workspace. 
there's, you know, there's no safe way to just be careful, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And statistically speaking, uh, for everyone who is going to listen to this and think, well, I've been doing it for years, statistically speaking, the more days you've gotten away with it, mm-hmm. the closer you are getting to the day when you won't, it will come. And so, uh, you know, the, the safety risks are significant because it is combustible in nature. Yeah. However, it is a clean extraction method. Um, butane and propane don't dissolve molt. They mm-hmm. can't carry over, uh, you know, water as easily. So um, the final product, because there's, it's, you know, very easy to remove the solvent and the solvents are food safe and our exposure to them is um, generally non-toxic. They're very safe products. Whereas with ethanol, um, high levels of residual ethanol uh, can certainly be harmful, especially for oral ingestion. And, um, you know, that high level of water content in a lot of CO2 products can lead to microbial growth. And so we have, um, you know, some, you know, some pros and cons both on the processing side Mm -hmm. as well as for the actual consumer. Because if I need a product that can store for a very long time with limited degradation, a hydrocarbon extracted product probably has a better shelf life than an ethanol extracted product um, or a CO2 extracted product based on literally just their moisture. I spoke with Dr. Daniel Hayden from Extractioneering about the chemistry of the extraction process. Extractioneering utilizes a co-solvent process to overcome some unique challenges with typical solvent-based extraction systems. They're best known for their carbonated high cannabinoid and high terpene full-spectrum extracts, and they claim to be one of the first companies to use the term full-spectrum to market a cannabis extract. When I come up to this problem in cannabis, when I got done with academia and government and everything, it's a a problem right in front of me. It's a separation problem that needs buffers. Mm And, and so certain things work better than others. You have, you have CO2. So CO2 is, doesn't have a hydrocarbon equivalent, right. um, although it comes from the industrial gas complex. Mm-hmm. Impurities could be added to CO2 right. just yeah. like, so like any, hydrocarbon, yeah. right? And so, um, so, but you have to bend CO2 in a few different directions. You say, I want a heavier molecule, I want a, I want a lighter molecule, in the end I'll, I'll put them back together. Yeah. And so I humpty dumpty got put back together again. It never, as I extract biology in my life and my career, mm-hmm. I could not reassemble complexity in the reverse direction. Yeah. Any meaning to any meaningful extent. Yeah, I mean that's a common issue in herbalism. I mean, going back to old roots of alchemy. Um, that's, and I don't want to deviate too much because we'll get to this, but this ties into the concept of full spectrum and everything. And this this concept that a lot of herbalists have been chasing down for a long time is how do you capture the plant essence um, in a basically a liquid form, essentially. And the most common way is taking all different parts of a plant, extracting it, trying to mix it back together. But to your point, when when you do that and you mix things back together, you tend to find that things have changed yeah. regardless of the ways you've tried to control them. Yeah, cannabis presents the most complicated example of all this. If you want to extract salicylic acid from yeah. willow bark, I mean, it's right in front of you. You know, you just remove yeah. everything and you get the one water-soluble compound yeah. in it, and it brings down your inflammation and takes your headache away. Yeah. But when you're talking about cannabis, uh, it's incredibly complex, and oxygen and everything oh, gosh, kind of yeah. affects what's happening there. Especially with terpenes that are very, very sensitive yeah. to oxidation. And- we want that complete 
resin. You toss everything else out. I'll get my chlorophyll from somewhere else. I'll get my <laughs> antioxidants from somewhere right. else. I'll get my proteins and my starch. I don't need this don't stuff need from, cannabis. from cannabis. I want yeah. <laughs> a bioavailable cannabis product yeah. that I can use in an administrated way, which is a vapor mm -hmm. that works best for my chemistry and evolution mm -hmm. species, right? So what I find throughout all my extraction and scientific knowledge is I've seen things come together and never be able to come apart again mm -hmm. based on the chemistry you're using. And right. I feel a lot of that is happening in cannabis concentrates today. What Dr. Hayden is describing here is a process called polymerization, where individual molecules start to join together, stick together to form long molecular chains. And this is actually really important because bigger molecules are more challenging for the body to break up and process, and polymerization leads to a lower bioavailability of things like cannabinoids and terpenes. Essentially, if an extraction process ends up leading to polymerization of these molecules, you're essentially losing access to them when they're consumed. They polymerize mm -hmm. with substances yeah. on the exterior yeah. of the leaf and what's trying to be protected on the interior of a trichrome. Lock it in place, and then when you go to vaporize it, almost like boiling water with salt in it. Mm -hmm. You're just getting these strands of glops coming and flying at you, and the THC works just the same. Mm -hmm. yep. You say like this to the product, it works, but you want all those things individual. So when they vaporize, you want them all individual, mm -hmm. and so you can, each one's your sensors and everything can get in there, and they can all get into your avoli and right. in your bloodstream as individual molecules. Yeah. It's just that little bit um, of extra, and it is, it is, found in chemistry and understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there is uh, proprietary parts of it. So we're working a lot with the combination of CO2 and butane. Mm, yeah. And what we found is that CO2 is the perfect co-solvent. So what it does is it gets into the resin and it all the parts that would polymerize or attach or oxygen mm -hmm. would affect the resin. We charge it with a CO2 like you would carbonate a beverage yeah and then we run the extraction and what with our sequence we understand that the co2 keeps it together and the, it issues like the butane mm -hmm. uh, and the solvent and keeps its terpenes and all its complexity folded together and then when we relax it and let it release mm -hmm. it unfolds and burps and and effervesces and all those co2 kind of come off of all those yeah. oxygens mm -hmm. and those double bonded areas uh, and then you can really start to taste all those molecules start to kind of unravel yeah and yeah. so in a sense we buffered we protected all the molecules during the extraction yeah and at the end there's no wax for them to lock together and to polymerize and yeah. now you're able to pick it up and dab it in the vapor, you're able to taste kind of each one. And we would hope each one would get into the bloodstream individually and right. have all the effects it's supposed to have. Another method that's a bit newer on the scene for cannabis extraction, but that's gaining in popularity, is extraction using tetrafluoroethane, or R134A. This is a chemical most commonly used as a refrigerant, which I know at first might sound a little weird, but... This compound, tetrafluoroethane, can be used as an extraction solvent, and supporters of this method usually claim that extraction with R134A can be performed at lower temperatures and lower pressures compared to other extraction systems, 
without needing much, if any, cleanup or post-processing refinement. Very few of the extractors that I've talked to over the past year or so for the podcast had much experience using this refrigerant as an extraction solvent, so we'll come back to this method in another interview or in a behind-the-scenes episode to talk more about it. (laughs) Don't worry, this isn't an ad. I just wanted to insert a brief intermission here to give you a chance to take a break if you need to. We're halfway in, we've got 30 minutes to go. If you need to pause and come back later to finish, this is a really good stopping point. Otherwise, I'll catch you back in the episode in a few seconds. Take it easy. So earlier I listed some of the many names of different types of cannabis extracts or concentrates. But what determines the difference between all of these products? Like what sets a wax apart from a shatter, apart from a sauce versus butter, batter, or pull and snap? For a lot of cannabinoids, the acid form and the, you know, the decarboxylated uh, form of that cannabinoid have different physical um, states. So, yeah. for example, THCA is, you know, a solid colorless crystalline product mm-hmm. at room temperature, whereas, um, you know, Delta 9 THC is, uh, you know, a colorless liquid yeah. at room temperature. And so that's a big difference in consistency. So if my concentrate is mostly THC Delta 9, I'm going to get sticky liquid because mm. Delta 9 is a sticky liquid. But if I've got mostly THCA... I am going to have a primarily dry solid. And so, um, you know, that first differentiation in ratio of, you know, THC versus THCA or, you know, CBD versus, you know, THC Mm -hmm. um, makes a big difference in, you know, just the potential consistency that I've got in front of me, especially because um, I don't want to say decarboxylation can't be reversed, but... uh, but generally, we're not we're not going back from that. Um, so once we have crossed into that decarboxylated yeah. state, you know, once I've got CBD, I've got a solid. Once I've got delta nine, I've got a liquid. And so, the hydrocarbon extraction process allows us to play with that texture a little bit more because we can start with a dry product and go liquid mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. So um, so that already makes a big difference. Is just the dominant compound in any given solution is going to dictate, you know, the, the structure that it takes on. Then from there we have, you know, the other minor groups that are involved. Mm -hmm. Now hydrocarbon extraction is also, um, excellent for terpene extraction because it happens at low temperature. So we don't destroy them and they're soluble, um, you know, in butane and propane. So we're able to capture a lot of them. Um, we also have the added benefit through hydrocarbon extraction, Um, of being able to extract wet or fresh frozen material because it doesn't take on water content in Mm -hmm. the same way that 5,000 PSI worth of CO2 (laughs) or any given amount of ethanol will. (laughs) So, um, so we have, uh, you know, the potential to not only extract more terpenes because they're compatible solvents, but also because we can capture terpenes from the plant material before it has dried out before those have changed, um, before those have evaporated. And so um, that terpene content is mostly liquid. Some terpenes are solid at room temperature, but mostly we're dealing with liquids. And so the amount of terpene content in any given hydrocarbon extracted product has a huge impact on 
that liquid versus solid situation mm-hmm. because those terpenes can dissolve that solid cannabinoid. Yeah, yeah. And so why we might have 90%, you know, solid THCA cannabinoid content, we might still have something that looks half liquidy because right. those terpenes can actually dissolve quite a bit of it and keep it in solution. So, um, you know, that that recipe gives us a lot of options. Um, and that's just based on what it contains, regardless of what I might do to mm-hmm. it. If I just pour it out of my extractor and here it is. Right. Then from there, um, because we have that acid form, um, because we have some of these solids, we have the potential for crystallization. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, in the opposite route, we have the potential for, um, you know, an emulsified or homogenized product. And so, you know, shatter, wax, butter, those kinds of things are generally homogenous products. Right. Um, you know, shatter is everything mixed up and, you know, solid and flat, whereas the butter and the wax is everything whipped up and actually aerated. Mm-hmm. Um, but in either case, uh, basically the same original content, which is way more THCA than that liquid terpene content, which allows it to be, you know, dry yeah. rather than wet. And then from there, it's just, you know, how we play with it. You know, it's kind of, at that yeah. point, it's kind of how do you take your eggs? Once an extract is made, it usually is not ready for retail quite yet. Most extracts go through various forms of cannabis refinement. The most common form of refinement is winterization, where an extract is cooled so that heavy fats and waxes will precipitate out of solution, and then that solution is usually poured over a filter where those heavier components are captured and the resulting extract comes out more pure. But there are other forms of refinement, like distillation, and a controversial process called CRC. Like anything new in cannabis, uh, CRC comes with its own made-up name that uh, people in the cannabis industry developed uh, to use for its specific application within cannabis. So it stands for color remediation, column or cartridge, generally. And uh, that color remediation part of the phrase is the important part because that's where everyone gets really hung up. Um, And and I say everyone because I mean everyone. The scientific community is going to criticize color as a remediation target. And um, and the the, uh, layman (laughs) is going to criticize that as well because it's not a very clear... Uh, oh, that's a good pun, right? Um, it's not a very, it doesn't help, it doesn't help explain what it is. Um, it just implies uh, remediation and remediation is a word that we don't like as consumers. We don't like hearing that because it implies that something was wrong to begin with. Um, the motivations behind it are often what causes a lot of the scrutiny um, in the same way that everyone was very critical of distillate. Um, for a very long time and even still today, to be honest, Um, because it implies that we're taking something that isn't good as is and we're making it uh, look better without actually being better is kind of the, you know, the real frustration that people have is that if all we've done is change the appearance, then that's not quite uh, a good enough improvement. Um, However, changing the appearance can't happen without also changing the product in some way. But what people mean by that is to remove some of the most well-known compounds that are accompanied by 
pretty common colors. And so the first category of that is going to be, um, you know, things like anthocyanins, xanthophils, tannins, um, you know, a lot of these like plant metabolites, these compounds within the plant that are not the like the oh no no's like chlorophyll that we just all agree like green is bad brown is bad um some of these others put you in the like honey color the copper color the bright reds um the deep red uh so somewhat pale pink sometimes you know um, then you have things like carotene where you get that like bright orange um and so these are a lot of compounds that we know are in cannabis we know are in other plants and so we know a about these compounds when we isolate them from other plants or when we use them within other plants. And with cannabis, we have all of these compounds that we want to associate this really important value to. Like these are the active ingredients, right? Um, you know, because they're either psychoactive or relevant to your experience in one way or another. So we've picked like certain terpenes that we think are good. You know, um, we haven't made a good list of terpenes that don't play a relevant role or that might be bad. Um, but, you know, then we've looked at things like canaflavin or like certain flavonoids, certain individual compounds. But we really pick and choose off of that board um, based on the evolution of our research and the demands of, you know, consumers and kind of just the trends in the way that we consume these products, too, you know. And so in that way, trying to remediate one or more of those compounds can give you wildly different results. So just removing anything that happens to reflect the color red might not have a very significant impact on the way your product tastes. But if you remove everything that reflects the color yellow, it will for sure, because you've got some compounds in there that are yellow that have a notable flavor. And these are flavors even more so than like terpenes or smells, right? So these are things that contribute to that like mouthfeel, to what you experience on the exhale. And um, those are really interesting compounds because those tend to be what we look at when we're trying to capture like the experience of smoking the joint in a dab, right? some of those compounds don't translate over either because we didn't extract them or we degraded them in the process or we filtered them out one way or another. So when people look at CRC, there's not one compound that we're saying is being removed. It's not like saying pesticide remediation where we're saying there's no pesticides now and everyone feels good about that. It's not like saying de-waxing where we're saying now there's not waxes and so everyone feels good about that. We're saying a big mystery category that we have not identified nor quantified has been removed, maybe probably can't be proven because we can't identify or quantify these compounds. Um, and then what you end up with as a consumer is just a visual change that represents any number of like actual physical changes in terms of what molecules were removed. Um, and so when you look at a clear product, uh, that is going to indicate generally more isolation, not a single isolate necessarily, but a higher purity of whatever compounds are there. And the whatever part is important, right? Because waxes can be white and chalky and dry, and that can be easily mistaken for 
um, ground up THCA powder, which appears chalky and dry, but is in fact a denser, more crystalline structure, right? And so that's, that's the difference between looking at sugar versus flour. Because if I take sugar and I grind it up into powdered sugar, now I'm looking at powdered sugar and flour, and it's a little harder to tell the two apart. You can, but you got to get in there, right? Um, you got to be familiar with that product already. And so for the average consumer, a scoop of dry wax is going to look almost the same as a scoop of dry THCA. However, the experience is going to be wildly different. So this particular method of um, this particular process is column based, which is an important feature of it, um, especially from that chemistry perspective, um, because it is all a variation of chromatography, um, generally a solid phase chromatography. And so the way that you apply that uh, is really important. And we've already established that the, you know, the goal of the process is unclear. Um, which within traditional chromatography would not really be acceptable. Um, all chromatography is about, you know, putting a sample in and separating it into major components. Um, and so when it's something like pesticides, we're going to use a column and we're going to use a media that is very appropriate based on its lack of compatibility with the solvent and its, you know, affinity to those particular pesticides to keep the pesticides in the column moving slowly and keep everything else in the solvent moving quickly. And so we choose our solid phase or that base, that media, the powder, uh, based on what we want to remove. And then similarly, we also choose a solvent based on what's going to work really well with that solid phase pairing. And so, you know, that whole chromatography theory is, is a very uh, relationship-oriented theory. It is the media versus the solvent plus the oil. How do we do it? Um, and the CRC approach, we've already chosen our solvent. We're keeping it in the butane-propane combination we already extracted with. So instead of having that variable that we choose with intention, we just say, here's our solvent, which is fine. Yeah, that's fixed. That's what our liquid phase... Uh, you know, our, our mobile phase is going to be all about. And now we go in and we look at our solid phases, right? And so we, this is where things get really complicated because our chromatography media, things like silica, things like alumina, um, there's a million different kinds. There's, you know, there's like imprinted beads now um, that are targeted to an individual molecule, right? So that means that there's a different type of media or powder for literally every molecule individually. And then there's the media that are for more than one of those at a time <laughs> in every shape and size in, um, you know, lots of different levels of, um, you know, purification or quality control. And so the differences in those media are really important based on their industrial applications. After talking to Murphy for nearly two hours about CRC, it became very clear that CRC is not a single thing, even though we often use that phrase as if it refers to a single thing, a single process. But in general, it's just a phrase used to refer to various widely different methods of column chromatography, often with very undefined quality parameters or molecular targets. So far, we've talked about how cannabis extracts are made, but let's change gears a little bit and focus on a different question. Are cannabis extracts or dabs safe? 
the safety of cannabis extracts is kind of complicated. First, there's the issue of contaminants in extracts, which can be unique compared to contaminants in cannabis flower, for instance. Without proper quality controls in place, extracts can be produced that feature any number of contaminants, sometimes in very high concentrations. And these contaminants can be things like leftover solvents, uh, possibly even uh, clays or silica. Sometimes there are chemical byproducts formed during the extraction or the refinement process. And also the process of concentrating cannabis resins can also concentrate certain contaminants like pesticides or even mycotoxins. Next, there's the problem of additives, which are intentionally added to a cannabis extract for one reason or another, but usually in order to give the extract a particular consistency. Some of the additives you might find in cannabis extracts include things like MCT oil, vitamin E or vitamin E acetate, uh, squalene or squalene, propylene glycol, just to name a few. And there's also an issue primarily affecting black market extracts, and particularly black market shatter, where pine resin is being blended with cannabis extracts to dilute them. And some of the compounds in pine resin are very toxic to the lungs. But let's say you have a clean extract. There's another problem, the hardware. A recent study found that vaporizer pens that feature nickel chromium hardware can cause intense respiratory symptoms that mimic those seen in the recent vaping epidemic of 2019. Metals, glues, and other compounds can leach into cannabis extracts depending on how they're housed, and that can cause contamination well after the fact. So even if a cannabis extract is clean, if it goes into bad hardware, it can still become contaminated and cause safety problems. Finally, another element that influences the safety of cannabis extracts is the temperature used to vaporize the extract. One study found that when cannabis extracts are heated at high temperatures, there are toxic byproducts like benzene that can be formed from the terpenes as they break down. But assuming that an extract is clean, that it's housed in adequate hardware, and it's heated at lower temperatures, are dabs safe? Well, the truth is that while smoking or vaping a dab once in a while is probably not going to hurt you, we really don't know anything about long-term chronic use of high-potency extracts over, let's say, decades. I mean, really, most people have been exposed to these things for maybe a couple of decades. A lot of the cannabis extracts like uh, butane hash oil or even like bubble hash really started to hit the scenes in the early 2000s, at least um, to the level of popularity that we know them now. So they haven't been around long. So there's a lot we don't know. We don't know how, let's say, dabbing every day for <laughs> decades is going to affect someone's health. In general, it's probably not a good idea to heat plant resins and inhale them in your lungs. But of course, we know that safety and health and wellness is not quite that simple. Now, you might be thinking that one of the benefits to cannabis extracts is that because they're more potent, that would encourage people to actually use less, and maybe they would be safer than smoking something like flour that has all sorts of other chemicals in it. Um, generally, people are smoking it, not vaporizing it, and that sort of thing. 
but this doesn't really seem to be what is happening, at least not in large part. Find the dabbing community on Instagram, and you'll be bombarded with videos of people proudly dabbing ungodly amounts of cannabis extract at once. There are challenges where people try to smoke as much as a gram or more of a cannabis extract all at once. And, you know, let's just say a cannabis extract is, you know, to be kind of conservative, let's say, let's say 60% or 70% um, THC. That would be around 700 milligrams per gram. So if you're trying to dab a whole gram, you're essentially taking 700 milligrams of THC at once, um, not to mention all of the smoke exposure and that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily true that people are smoking less because they've moved on to cannabis extracts. And I can tell you from personal experience in workshops that I've taught and communicating with people that consume cannabis extracts every single day, um, there are tolerance issues. And a lot of times um, what I hear from my students that engage in these activities is that once they've switched over to high-potency extracts, um, the level of tolerance that develops makes it very difficult to um, cut back or switch back to cannabis flower or anything less potent. Um, and so that in and of itself is an issue because it's driving people to consume more and more, uh, which may not be having positive impacts um, on their bodies in a lot of different ways. I mean, we know that chronic cannabis use does cause changes to the brain. It does change the way the endocannabinoid system functions. And we know the endocannabinoid system is tied into pretty much every other physiological system in our bodies. So constantly manipulating it may not be the best thing to do. Um, chronic cannabis use can lead to a downregulation of cannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoid production. Um, it's also possible to develop um, things like cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, where um, there's a dysregulation of communication between cannabinoid receptors and other types of receptors like TRPV1 receptors that causes these really interesting physiological changes that makes people feel nauseated. There are negative effects associated from chronic cannabis use that can be experienced, and it is definitely possible that with cannabis extracts, you might experience those effects possibly more easily than you would with flour. We really just don't know, and that's what I really want to emphasize, is that we don't know. Before we wrap up this episode, I really want to directly address a very confusing set of terms related to cannabis extracts, and these include the terms full spectrum, broad spectrum, and whole plant. Perhaps you've noticed these terms on the packaging of a cannabis product. They're especially prevalent in the hemp market for CBD products and CBG products. The problem is that there's no standardized definition for any of these terms which effectively allows any producer to claim anything they want. Here's a clip from a conversation I had with colleague and herbal scientist Travis Simpson, where I ask him how he feels about the use of these terms. When I think of full spectrum, um, I am unfortunately jaded in the sense that it has been um, taken advantage of by uh, commercial marketing techniques to really articulate um, product advantages over isolated products. Herbalists have been doing this for a very long time, trying to get 
the most therapeutic profile out of mm-hmm. a plant, which has to do with multiple parts of the plant mm-hmm. and then multiple preparations of those different parts of the plant. And within the cannabis and hemp space, the primary processing is done on aerial parts, leaves, some stems, mm-hmm. um, mostly flowers, um, very um, infrequently, but sometimes seed mm-hmm. um, will get its way into some of the extracts. And those lead to end concentrates that have uh, a greater chemical diversity. But um, in the full spectrum conversation, it's very important to identify what spectrum it is that we're referring to. Yeah, um, great point, yeah. Because within a spectrum, um, that can be on the platform of, say, the whole plant. And we know the cannabis plant has therapeutic properties within the roots, um, mm-hmm. primarily sterile constituents. Uh, like campesterol. Campesterol. Um, um, uh, beta cystisterol, uh, I think mm-hmm. is one of them, yeah. The stilbenoids mm-hmm. um, are a powerful class that... Um, is outside of the spectrum of full-spectrum oil right? Um, because we eliminate root tissue in most modern extraction techniques. Um, so when we talk about full-spectrum, um, it can often refer to either a cannabinoid spectrum, um, a terpene spectrum, or mm-hmm. various degrees of pigments within a concentrate. Mm-hmm. Um, most people would agree that a distillate is not a full-spectrum, though some people market distillate as a full-spectrum cannabinoid profile, being that they are not isolating out any of the individual cannabinoids from that total cannabinoid um, process. Full-spectrum is a marketing term unless they go out and define certain levels. um, You'd have to go back to the flower or go back to the biomass and say, I have X percent of minor cannabinoids. In my extract, I am going to represent those minor cannabinoids at a certain level, and I'm not going to lose any of them. If you want to talk about flavonoids, if you want to yeah. talk about, um, what else am I thinking? Uh, let's just leave it as flavonoids right now, because that's a buzzword for everybody because of the right. potential anti-cancer properties of canflavin. Yep. You need to show that with analytical work. Not just saying, oh, my, my, my uh, extract is mild. I don't know any testing lab that's testing for flavonoids. There may be. So until there's an accepted definition of what is full spectrum based on what you're starting with, it's a marketing term. And what about this underlying assumption that full spectrum or whole plant extracts are best? This assumption is primarily based on anecdotal reports and very limited in vitro and in vivo rodent research. To date, there is very little controlled research that has investigated how different components of the cannabis resins contribute to effects. While it's clear that there are modulatory effects happening, how much of the plant's chemical spectrum are needed to drive these effects, we just don't know. The entourage effect, as we commonly talk about it today, is actually a far cry from the intended meaning when it was originally proposed in the late 1990s. I'll close out this section by going back to our conversation with Marcus Richardson. I've really noticed these terms get uh, really popular over the last five years, seven years or so, um, where they're like really, you know, everyone's really talking about it and blended it into their branding. So. What's, what's your perspective on that? 
Well, it's it's pure marketing, and it's come from our conversations on Hash Church. There's absolutely no doubt. You called the timeline to the perfection. You know, keep in mind it was Skunkman Sam who was the one who discovered the modality, the, the modulation effects of terpenes. He did it in 2000. He hit up. Ed Rosenthal, who wrote the article on Mercine. He hit up Ethan Russo, who created the ensemble effect. Um, He hit me up. Um, It was the first time I had ever smoked pure THCA and then pure THCA with a single terpene. It was a world of difference. So he opened our eyes up to this modulation. The rest of the world didn't get to become a part of that conversation until I invited him into Hash Church in 2014. That's when we started talking about terpenes. That's when Horatio started making terpenes and Tony started making terpenes and Kay from Tricom Technology was doing terpenes and Sam was opening up this whole conversation. And of course, you know, what people do is they listen and then they become experts the next day and they're like, well, you know, terpenes are very important. It has to be full spectrum. It's like, well, that's just not true. And I, my perfect example is like, listen, the plant is producing a variety of things for us and whatever works is what we should be able to do for ourselves. We should not try to pigeonhole anyone into, con- oh, it's all about full spectrum. It's the I listen to Hash Church and it, terpenes modulate the effects. You can't not have all the terpenes there. And it's like, let's say, you know, okay, full spectrum. You're all about your full spectrum. Giving full spectrum to some a child with Dravet syndrome, it works for the first six months, no problem. But something happens in the grow room at one point in time. There's variables that occur. Pressures are are lost. Heat and temperatures are lost. Things things change. Maybe something happened in the water. The expression changes, and now that medicine no longer works for that patient. I never want full spectrum to go away. But I also will always fight for monomolecular isolates because what if there are companies that can come in in the future, test a a full spectrum cultivar that's, you know, being used for neurologically sensitive folks like Dravet syndrome and, and whatnot. And what say we take that cultivar, we deconstruct it. We reconstruct it in a formulated room where everything is exactly what it was every single time. You've got the recipe. It's absolutely beyond consistent, more consistent than the plant itself will ever be able to be. And now you're, now you've got the, the best of both worlds. We didn't have to get rid of one. P- humans just want to put up a fence all the time. Oh, monomolecular, no, full spectrum, no, monomolecular, no, broad yeah. spectrum. It's like, oh, yeah. my God, you guys are fighting for the same plant. Like, let, you can both have that. Right. It, doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be one or the other, which is the, the part that I just sometimes want to bang my head because people we we just want to pick what we want you know and that took me a long time being a water hash and a solvent guy now i'm at the point where i of course would fight for anyone's right to extract any way that they want i would fight for the bho guys and fight for the co2 guys and fight for the ethanol guys because they all we all have our choices and our personal preferences and i want them all to be available because what better way to choose when they're all actually available for you to choose where you can actually make a choice and say hey this medicine works for me or whether it's recreational it's it's it reduces my anxiety and my stress and it works for me for what i want so I like the idea of all of these things being uh, made available, and I, I try not to get myself stuck in a position where I'm choosing what is best. What's best for me is certainly not what is best for you. Let's summarize what we've learned so far. Cannabis extracts can be produced through a variety of different methods. Solventless extracts can be produced through dry or wet sifting or by pressing cannabis flowers or the trichomes themselves under heat to produce what's called rosin. 
Extracts can also be made using solvents such as food lipids like butters or vegetable oils, or things like alcohols like ethanol or isopropanol, or other things like supercritical or subcritical carbon dioxide, alkane solvents like butane, propane, hexane, pentane, or even refrigerant like R134A, also known as tetrafluoroethane. How cannabis flour is prepared prior to extraction can dramatically impact the final chemistry of the product. For instance, if cannabis flour is decarboxylated prior to extraction, most terpenes are lost, and this is really common with CO2 extraction. Cannabis extracts often undergo a refinement process, like winterization, distillation, or column chromatography, which is the case with a method colloquially referred to as CRC. The safety of a cannabis extract depends on a number of factors, including contaminants, additives, appropriate hardware, the dose, the temperature if you're vaporizing or smoking, and the frequency of use. It's always best to practice moderation with anything in life, dabs included. For extracts that have been heavily refined or manipulated to produce other chemicals, like Delta-8 THC from CBD, it's really important to understand the purity of the product to know whether unknown chemicals were formed in the chemical synthesis process. Marketing terms like full spectrum, broad spectrum, or whole plant are not standardized terms in the industry, and every company can use these terms according to their own needs. Additionally, strain names and other labels like indica sativa that might be assigned to the cannabis flower often become irrelevant as the chemistry of the extract becomes significantly manipulated through the extraction and refinement process. Now, this isn't the case for all extracts and all processors. There are some processors that have done a good job at keeping the chemistry of the fractions that they're harvesting intact. But ultimately, what really matters to consumers should be the chemistry of the finished product, what it's housed in, the packaging or the delivery method, and how it's used. When it comes to cannabis extracts, it's important not to get lost in the weeds. And with that, that's our show. I hope you've enjoyed this kickoff to Season 2. I look forward to bringing you more episodes really soon. Keep an eye out for accompanying behind-the-scenes episodes. I'm Jason Wilson. Until next time, stay curious and take it easy. Special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me to help build not just this episode, but other episodes throughout this and other seasons. You can find the show notes for this episode at cacpodcast.com slash episodes. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available on our website at cacpodcast.com book, or on amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and other major online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis workshops are coming soon. Check out cacpodcast.com events to learn about our 12-week workshop series that gives learners a unique crash course in cannabis and cannabinoid science. Taught by yours truly and featuring guest lectures from previous podcast guests and other industry experts. If you're looking for an intensive scientific introduction to cannabis, you've found it. Visit cacpodcast.com slash events to learn more. To support the show and get access to extended and exclusive episodes, early releases, merchandise and event discounts and more, 
visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Stay curious and take it easy. We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn the truth. Because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect them.